You are listening to Meat and Potatoes, a 12-week teaching series from Jubilee Church. Meat and Potatoes is an expression used to convey the most important and basic part of an idea or practice. This series will explore some of the most critical elements of Christian faith. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. We are kicking off our meat and potatoes series today. Uh, if you're like me, I absolutely love meat and potatoes. Uh, I could eat, yes, a little rally cry for meat and potatoes. <laughs> I see a lot of men shaking their hands. Um, I could eat meat and potatoes all the time, every day, every meal. I could start with it. I could finish it. Anyway, but the reason we're doing this series is not because somebody like me just loves meat and potatoes. The reason we're doing this series is because uh, meat and potatoes really represents the staples of our diet, right? I mean, you can have the garnishes on the plate and the dessert after the meal, but the meat and potatoes is what gives you sustenance. The the meat and potatoes is what nourishes your body. And as a church, we don't want to be a people who are just always devouring empty calories. We we don't want to just eat the sweet things and the things that, you know, taste good to us or tickle our ears, but we want to eat the things that really feed us and nourish us and help us continue on in this walk with God. So this is a this is an interesting series because whether you're brand new to Christianity, Jubilee, uh, or whether you've been a part of this church for 10, 20, 30 years, walking with God that whole time, uh, this, is, this is, we can feed on all these things together. We're not saying this, these are the only staples of the diet, but we are saying these are some key staples to the diet that we want to revisit. And uh, I get the privilege of kicking this series off today, so you may not come back at all after today, uh, based on what I'm going to say in the next 25 minutes. Or you may come back again. So I, I hope that I don't ruin it too bad for you and that you can still eat meat and potatoes after this. But uh, there's really no better way to start off a series regarding the staples of the faith than looking, taking a step back and looking at the big picture, right? I mean, a, a lot of people that, that I talk to, and I know in my own life when I was new to Christianity, I was coming in and I was hearing all these things about God and Jesus and church and uh, these words I'd never heard before, I, I like to call it Christianese now, you know, all the isses and, you know, righteousness and godliness, and it's like, what is all this? So I had to learn a new language and also learn a new faith, and, um, but I had all these kind of puzzle pieces that I was thinking, okay, how do these things fit together, you know, like a cross in a church, like, what's that all about, you know, like, the, it hangs outside most churches, it's in most churches, people talk about it all the time, and I'm thinking, like, you know, we don't have one here, actually, which may, you may ask that question, you know, why is there not a cross here, but I, I was asking all those questions, and one thing that really helped me, and I think will help us, is just stepping back and taking a big picture view of things. Kind of like when you're putting a puzzle together, if you can kind of just step back and look at the picture on the box and see, okay, this is the big picture. This is where things are headed. This is what this puzzle is all about. We can then take all the little pieces and make them fit right in the puzzle, right? So just to kick this off, if you get nothing else out of this today, I I just want to take a step back and say the big picture of what we're looking at. The big picture of uh, what I want to call the story of God today is that God is a father who who wants a family for himself. I'll say that again. The the big picture of the story of God is that he's a father who wants a family for himself. And and where I want to start today is, is just where the Bible starts in the beginning. And these are the first five words of 
the Bible. It says, in the beginning, I got it here. Genesis 1, first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. That's how this story begins. That's how this picture, this, this puzzle of Christianity begins, is that in the beginning, God created. So God was in and of himself, fine, doing great, being God, re- relating to himself, loving, loving himself, enjoying himself, and yet God created. He wanted to create something out of himself that he could enjoy, that he could love, that he could delight himself in, something that would reflect to him just how good and amazing and awesome this God was. So in the beginning, God created, and it goes on to say that God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good, and that he created the light, and the light was good, and that he created the wetland and the dry land, and and the wetland and the dry land was good. And on the dry land, he made vegetation, so plants and trees, plants that, that brought seeds, and these seeds were good, trees that brought fruit, and this fruit was good. You could eat this fruit. I love fruit, by the way. I love apples and oranges and nectarines and the whole thing. I love it. So he made trees and fruit, which was good for the eating. He made the sun and the moon and the stars, and he said it was good. He made sea creatures, so little fishies and big fishies, and he made the, you know, the birdies of the air, and he made animals like beef and pork and, I mean, you know, cows and pigs, and, and it was good. He said it was all good. And he continued on. He made what I would say the pinnacle of his creation. People like us. He made the first man and the first woman. And he said it was good. And it it was so good, this first man and this first woman. Before he even made him, he said, I'm going to make them in my image. I'm going to make them after my likeness. They're going to be like me. They're going to love me. They're going to they're going to reflect to me just how good I am, and I'm going to be good to them. This was, in a sense, God's first boy and his first girl. He is a father who's creating a family for himself. And for this man and this woman, he gave them a garden which they could live in, and in that garden he gave them an abundance of trees with fruit which they could eat from, and he said it was all good. And he he got them together, you know, his first boy and his first girl, and he said, you, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. So I want, I want this, in this garden, I want you to enjoy this. I want you to tend it. I want you to care for it. I want you to care for the animals. I want you to have kids in this garden. I want you to send your kids out from this garden, that, that your kids would fill the earth, that they would care for the animals, and they would care for the ground, and, 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 and they would enjoy it. And that Throughout all the generations, men and women would know God, that they would love him, that they would delight themselves in him. What God created from himself was a reflection of himself. He created good beings. He created good land and good water. Everything that he created was good and perfect and sweet. And there, there was a peace about this land, that, a peace that you and I have never known, a, a peace that was... It was, it was better than silence. It was better than the best day. It was, it was a perfect, joyful, peaceful, loving place. But that's not the world that you and I know, is it? 
I mean, we know a world of injustice and pain and suffering and torment. We know a world where uh, men kill each other. We know a world where uh, there's, there's not sweet unity in marriage, but there's divorce in marriage and there's separation and brokenness. We know a world where uh, children don't love their parents and obey their parents and respect their parents. We know a world where uh, children rebel against their parents, where they turn from them, where there's division in the home, where there's division in communities, where there's separation among the races where there's radical groups that are, that are literally killing people across the earth. We, we know a world that's very different from this original world that God created. And the, the question has to come, so what happened from that world to the world that you and I live? What happened to make everything that was so good and so beautiful and so serene turn so bad and so ugly and so detrimental. And just a few chapters into this book, we have our answer. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So Genesis chapter 3, third chapter of the Bible, this serpent enters the garden. And there's only one thing that God commanded this man and this woman not to do. He said, I I don't want you to eat of this one tree that I've made, of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you eat of that tree, it's going to be death and destruction and pain for you. I don't want you to eat of that because it's not going to be good for you. See, even in the things God says for us to do, it's for our goodness. In the things God says for us not to do, it's for our good. He said to them, I don't want you to do this because it's not going to be good for you. But this serpent comes along. He's a pretty smart guy. I don't understand how serpents talk, but this serpent talked, so we're just going to go with it, all right? And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say to you, did God actually say to you that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, well, we can eat of all the other trees, but God said you can't eat of that tree. And the serpent replied, you'll, not, you'll surely not die if you eat of that tree. You see what the serpent's doing? He says two things here. He says, did God really say? So this serpent, he's the devil, what, what Christians would call the devil or Satan, the evil one, the one who is against God's people. And he still comes with this same claim today to us. But this is the claim he first came to with the first woman. He said, did God really say to you? What, what God said in his book, what, what God said to you personally, was, is that really true? Can you trust that? Was it right? Did he, did he even say it in the first place? The second thing he says, hey, what God said, it's not true. You're, you're, you're actually not going to die if you eat of that. It's not going to be bad and painful and, and for, your, for your destruction if you do that. It's going to be for your good. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll, you'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. You won't need God anymore because you'll be just like him. God's holding out on you. God's keeping good things from you. That's what the serpent said to the man and the woman. He said, God's keeping good things from you. He's, he's withholding his hand from you. He's not for your good. He's for your destruction. You see what the serpent's done? He's twisted it. Where God was for their good, he's the one who created them. He's the one who made all things that are good. The serpent who's coming in to destroy them is saying God's actually out for your destruction. 
God's not one who's benevolent and giving good things to you. He's not one who's generous and continually pouring himself out for you. He's one who's trying to take from you. He's trying to keep from you. He's trying, he's trying to destroy you. But I, if you listen to me, I'll help you. I'll help you become like a God. I'll help you have what you want. See what's happening here? The serpent twisted it to the woman. And the woman believed the serpent, and the woman took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and she ate. And then she turned to her husband, who was with her, which is a whole other point on its own, that he's just sitting there letting all this happen. But he turned to her husband, who's with her, and says, hey, why don't you have some of this? And the husband takes of the fruit, and he eats. And then the story goes on that God comes... They, they find out they're naked when they eat of the fruit, which this is frustrating, right? Like, naked was okay. <laughs> and then they eat the fruit, and naked's not okay. And they're ashamed, and so they put on clothes. And naked's not okay. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that again. felt like a little three-year-old. Um, lost everything I was saying. <laughs> there it is. And, and God comes looking for them, and, he, and, they, and they were, he said, why are you hiding yourself? Oh, we're ashamed, we're naked. Who told you you were naked? And it comes out, oh, they did it. They ate of the tree of the knowledge. And so God comes to the man and the woman, and he places a curse on them. And to the woman, he said that she would have pain in childbirth. Now, I've never had a child, so I don't know that from what I hear. Pretty bad, right? But God's good. There's a blessing in children. They're a blessing from the Lord. To the man, his work would be very difficult. So nine to five, bringing in the cash flow for the family, trying to provide, not going to be so easy anymore, not going to be so joyful anymore. There's going to be struggle in work. There's going to be struggle in finding work. There's going to be struggle in the work that you do have. But the promises that he will provide. And then to them as a couple, the curse is that they'll have strife in their marriage. So instead of being a couple that loves God and is joined to him and that loves each other and is joined to one another, they're, they're this couple that is, although they're trying to be together, they find themselves always wanting uh, their own best and not the best of the other. They find themselves always trying to dominate one another and overcome one another instead of partnering together in love. These are the curses that God put on the man and the woman. But he, in, in making a, a curse to them and, and in this sin entering the world, the Bible describes this moment as the, the moment in human history when they ate of this fruit and when God cursed them that, that sin entered into the world and all this pain, all this injustice, all this fear, all this destruction between men and this, this, this rivalry between men and this division among men, all this entered into the world when they chose to eat that fruit and when God cursed them. Everything that's wrong with our world today, all the suffering, all the injustice, I mean, I ask myself that, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question, I ask myself that question often. God, why is this happening to me? Something bad comes my way or something bad comes the way of somebody I love. And I, and I ask myself the question, God, why is this happening? I, I, I don't think that you're punishing me in this or you're like trying to hate me in this or I don't think you're doing that to that person. 
But I don't understand. Like, if you're God, why are you allowing this to happen? But when I trace it back, I mean, most of the time, I don't know the answer to that question. We don't know the answer to that question. Another question that comes is, why could, how could a good God allow suffering, right? I mean, all the evil and injustice and pain that we see in our world, if God was really good, why would he let that happen? If God was really good, why would he let people be, innocent people be murdered? If God was really good, why would he let innocent children die? If God was really good, why would he let blank happen? But when, when I trace it back to, to the beginnings of this book, what, what I don't find is a God who's evil and who's looking to punish his people. What I find is a God who's good, who's wanting to give to his people and love his people. What I find is a father who's looking to gather a family to himself. But what I also find is a people who have really messed up their relationship with God, and a people who have really messed up the things that God made and intended to be good. So when I ask the question, God, why is this happening? Oftentimes what I find myself back to, it may not be my disobedience to God or someone else's disobedience, to, but when I trace that thing all the way back, there is, there is not a God problem, there's a people problem at the beginning of it. Even if it was this first people problem, just sin entering into the world and this world being fallen and corrupt and sick because of it. You know, our our bodies are decaying because of this sin that entered into the world. Even if it's just that, what I find is not a God problem, but a people problem. But when God cursed this man and this woman, he didn't just leave it at a curse, but he also gave them a promise. He promised that to the, he actually made the promise to the woman. He said, one of your descendants, so a child will be born among your bloodline who will actually, who will make this right. And one of your descendants will crush or bruise the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise the heel of your descendants. So essentially, I'm promising that I'm going to send someone to you who's going to make this right. I'm promising that I'm going to send someone to you that's going to save you from all this chaos and all this torment and all this evil, but it's going to come at a cost. It's, it's going to cost that person whom I'm promising to you. But, but here's the deal. I promise I'm going to send them. I promise that there will be a day when I send someone we as a church, we've just went through this Advent season. And, we, and so we know that from the moment God made that promise until the moment that Jesus came is about 4,000 years. And across that 4,000 years, there were many, many, many prophecies about Jesus. At least 330 prophecies about this man who was to come from the, the descendant of Eve. This man who was to come that was going to make things right between God and his people. And one of the prophecies that... I mean, these prophecies cover a lot of things. These prophecies cover where this man was going to be born, how this man was going to be born. This covers that he was going to be born sinless, which would mean that he would have to be born of a virgin. He was going to live a perfect life. He was going to be spotless. He was going to be perfect. He was going to be without imperfection. He was going to be without sin. He was going to be without any of this rebellion in his heart towards God talked about his life, what he would do, what he would be like. These prophecies even spoke uh, significantly to how he would die, what his death would be like, what he would be like in his death. 
And when we look to the person of Jesus who died on the cross 2,000 years ago, that man in his life, documented in history, fulfilled every single one of those 330 prophecies. 30 of them he fulfilled in a single day. So over a course of 4,000 years leading up to the birth of this man named Jesus, over 330 things spoken about what he would be like. And in his life and in his death, he fulfilled every single one of them. Isaiah the prophet, who probably spoke more about this Savior to come, the one who would redeem God's people. 700 years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah said this. He said, surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is exactly how the people, when Jesus was dying, esteemed him. This is exactly how they thought of him. You can leave that verse up, but I'm just going to flip to a little passage in Matthew here. When Jesus was being hung on a cross, that's why crosses are in churches, because that's how Jesus died, was on a cross. When he was being hung on the cross, this is the, these are the kind of things that people said to him while he was on that cross. He saved others. Can he not save himself? He's supposed to be the king of Israel. Let him then come down from that cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Then let God deliver him now. If, he, if God actually desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Of God. So when Isaiah writes that this man who is going to come and save God's people, that surely he's borne our griefs and our sorrows, that we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, that's exactly how the people, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, esteemed him. They esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah goes on, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. This man named Jesus, he lived a perfect life. The Bible says that he lived a life without sin, that he was born of a virgin. His mother Mary was a, a virgin impregnated by God himself. Again, I don't fully understand that, but I believe it. He lived a perfect life without sin. He lived a life of love and compassion. He, he, he was known for his amazing teaching and also his incredible power. He, he did things that no other man has ever done. He, he healed men who were crippled. He healed the blind. He, a, a woman who had a blood disease for 10 years and no doctor or physician of her day could, could even come close to making her well. Just one touch of Jesus' outer clothing and she's made perfectly well. I mean, he did things that no other, God, no other man has ever done done. And when Isaiah writes about him, he says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now the thing about a man like this is that he would have to be without sin, wouldn't he? For some, for, because if sin is, if sin is against God, then, then anybody who ever sinned would have to be punished for that sin, wouldn't they? I mean, if, if any sin at all makes us wrong and, and, and not acceptable before God, then anybody who had ever sinned would have to be punished for their sin. So Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, he would have to be 
without sin for that to happen. So when Isaiah writes that he was pierced for our transgressions, essentially what he's saying is he was pierced so that we could be made whole. Yeah, we were the ones who were meant to be punished for our sins, but he was pierced instead of us. Adam and Eve and all their descendants should have been cut off from God because of what they did, but instead Jesus came to make that right. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So Jesus, when he was pierced on the cross, fulfilled the promise that God made of that when he was on the cross, over 4,000 years prior to that, God made a promise to his people, I'll make this right. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he made it right. When he took his last breath on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's finished. It's done. The thing that God had been working towards for over 4,000 years, Jesus finished it on the cross. Your sin and my sin Our sin, which makes us before God unacceptable, our sin, which makes us before God ones who have turned our back on him, ones who have looked away from him, ones who have not loved him. When we look to Jesus, when we we put our trust in him, we put our faith in him, it's finished. All of our sin is finished. All of it's taken away. So we're a people who come to God today, not because of anything that we've done, but completely because of what he's done for us. It's amazing, amazing truth. And the story goes on that Jesus rose from the dead, that he appeared to two of his followers, two women, Mary and Mary. That he, so that's amazing in itself, isn't it? He didn't stay in the grave. He came back from the dead. He appeared to the two ladies. He appeared to his 11 disciples. He came to him and he said, guys, this isn't the end of the story. I actually, now that I'm risen from the dead, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And this is what he said to him. He said, I want you to go therefore now and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always till the end of the age. So this is what Jesus says to his, his followers. He says, guys, look, in the be- so recapping this story a bit, in the beginning, God created this perfect creation, this perfect world with people that he God's a father, right? Wanting a family for himself. They mess it up. It goes bad. Jesus comes. He dies on the cross to make it right. He comes back to his followers and he says, I want you to go into all the earth and make disciples of me. I want you to go and tell people about me so that people can be made right with God again. I want you to go tell people about this, that the promise has been fulfilled. I want you to go and tell people that they don't have to strive to try and please God anymore. That they don't have to strive to try and make themselves right with God anymore. That if they just look on me, if they just believe in me, if they just believe in what he's done on the cross for them, then they'll be forever made right with God again. So he comes to his disciples and he says, guys, you know me, you've been with me, you believe in me, you've been made right with me, now I want you to go and help others make, be right with me as well. When we look at the end of the story, that verse that Alex read at the begin, beginning, Revelation 21, 3. Oh, I ripped my Bible. That's bad. I don't do this, but. (laughs) Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them 
and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see it? You see it? In the beginning, God created people for himself because he's a father who wants a family. In the end, God has a people for himself because he's a father who wants a family. And it says that they will be his people and he will be their God. In the middle, Jesus made a way for us to be a part of the family of God. And this is what he says to those who are his followers. He says, I want you to go and make disciples of all the people groups of the earth. I want, I want you to go out into your neighborhoods and your workplaces, your families. I want, you to, I want you to herald this. I want you to proclaim this, that I've made a way for them to come to God. We live in a world that is void of hope. We live in a world that is at odds with itself, that is broken, that is full of injustice and pain. And yet God has made a way for us to be restored to himself. And that's actually, that's the way that all this is made right again. When Jesus gathers the people to himself that are to be his, he's gonna make it all right. He's gonna create a new heavens and a new earth. This is what he says. Just the the verse right after what I just read. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Our God is making all things new. if If you are a believer in Jesus today, your God has made you new. I'm a new man today because I'm in him. I I stand today not with my sins covering me, not with the corruption of sin destroying me, but I stand today as a man who's been made new by the love and the grace of Jesus. And if you're a believer today, that's the same for you as well. If you're not a believer in Jesus today, if you've never followed him, if you've never trusted him in your life, I just want to invite you in to trust him in your life today. He said that if anyone called on his name, that if anyone believed in him, if anyone would, would so much as look at him and say, Lord, will you save me? You know, when he hung on that cross, there were, there were two thieves, one on each side of him. One thief mocked him. One thief made fun of him like all the others. The other thief said, Lord, can I be with you? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. If, if someone so much as looks at him and says, I want you, I trust you. Will you, can I be yours? He does it. He makes us his. He loves us. We grab out your communication card.